This is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today we're talking about Dredge, developed by Black Salt Games and published by Team 17. Dredge was released for PC, Switch, PS5, and the Xbox Series systems in 2023. And we'll be talking spoilers, so heads up if you are sensitive to that. Ahoy, Josh. What would you say if I told you there was a horror fishing game uh, released by an indie studio. Interesting idea, no? I would say that makes so much sense. I mean, have you ever looked in an ocean before? It's it's horrifying. (laughs) Like octopuses, crabs, lobsters. These things aren't real fish. They're not real animals. It doesn't make sense. So the idea of taking the fish and adding on like otherworldly horror onto it is seems natural to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure an anglerfish is basically an alien already. So, you know, oh, the, um, it, it fits. I, I, fun bit of movie trivia. Do you know the movie Alien, where they have the little alien head pop out of the big alien head's mouth? Yeah. That's a fish. That is the moray <laughs> eel. It has something called a pharyngeal jaw, which is a second set of jaws inside its first set of jaws that pops out to snag fish. Well, that's perfect. We have a precedent for um, basically utilizing crazy-ass shit on our own planet as aliens. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Or cosmic horrors, I guess. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, it's something about, like, the depths, too. Like, you could think of the most inhospitable place on Earth, and you probably think of, like, I don't know, Antarctica. And there's, I don't know cuddly penguins or that you go to the Sahara and there's like a desert fox or spiders. Spiders are weird, but you're, you're used to spiders. But then when you think of like the bottom of the ocean, it's just completely different than what you are expecting or what you're thinking. Yeah, it's very true. It's um, I guess, you know, we've always talked about like uh, the last frontier being space, but there is like a staggering amount of our own planet uh, down at those really deep levels that we haven't explored yet. And, um, I think uh, it's all, as you said, it's completely inhospitable. Like it's just as dangerous to go to the depths of the ocean and say, um, you know, troll around the ruin of the Titanic as it is to uh, launch an expedition into outer space. If anything <laughs> goes wrong with your craft, you're dead either way. <laughs> <laughs> and there's strange things that can kill you too, like the bends coming back up. If you go up too fast, nitrogen rebels against your body and you die. So all this is to say, I suppose, um, ocean, scary. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, everyone takes vacations to the beach. I, I myself am about to take one here in just a little bit. But um, the deeper you go, the more horrific it becomes. And I'm sure that the dev team being based in New Zealand is well aware of the ocean and the horrors that can be found within. Let's talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about them. Um, Black Salt Games is a four-man dev team with a producer. Um, So five-man team, five-person team. Um, And this is their first release. Very strong uh, for first first effort. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, as you said, hailing from Christchurch in New Zealand, I... uh... I was looking up an interview with them and I read this really endearing quote about how overwhelmed they were by the positivity to the game's, um, you know, pre and post launch reception. So it's really nice to see someone, you know, obviously 
these folks seem like good people. Um, coming in, hitting one out of the park on the first try. And I think something that really helped with that is their publisher, Team 17. Uh, Team 17, they developed the Worms franchise, uh, but have probably since mid-2010s or so have uh, kind of been like a little under-the-water grimshot. Not going to be the last pun you hear, but a little (laughs) bit of an under-the-water like indie powerhouse. Um, some of their games include things like Overcooked, My Time at Porsche, uh, Blasphemous, Moving Out, Golf with Your Friends, uh, Narita Boy. And none of these are kind of like things where you'd think like, oh, this is a, this, you know, this, um, this game launched a AAA studio, but just a lot of solid hits and they do a great job publishing. For instance, like Dredge was kind of like uh, in the indie zeitgeist uh, for a little while. And I think a good part of that was uh, Team 17 being able to take this great game and show it to the right people at the right time. And I think a lot of that came back to that trailer, because I don't know about you, but I remember seeing the trailer for this game for the first time. And it's like basically a fully animated like mini movie. Like it's really um, well done. And, you know, I'm sure publishing probably had a hand in that, but... Um, it was really, I think that's that's well put that this game got in front of the right people and, and definitely sort of caught fire when it needed to. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't see the trailer. I have to look that up at, at the end of this. Yeah, maybe I'll link it in the notes. Well, not to summarize the trailer, but to summarize the plot. What happens in this <laughs> game? Yeah, so um, in, uh, in Dredge, you are a fisherman uh, for a small town where very strange things occur at night. Uh, over the course of the game, you head out into the waters, you catch fish using sort of a quick-time mini-game, and you place them in your Tetris-like cargo hold and earn money by selling them. But there is uh, a lot more going on beneath the surface, or beneath the waves, but um, than you might first uh, notice. <laughs> And this is something that the game highlights right out the bat. Like, you're a fisherman, but these strange rocks appear and crash your ship, and you wash up on shore, and the mayor's like, oh, you hardly survived that. That's strange. You're a fisherman. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. They're like, oh, you're a fisherman, and you've uh, you've crashed your, your boat? Here, how about we give you a boat and place you into uh, indentured servitude until you pay off the <laughs> boat we just gave you? <laughs> just don't go out at night. Nothing good happens at night. And please, please, don't think too hard about the indentured servitude I just placed you in turn. <laughs> <laughs> the real horror is capitalism. <laughs> I mean, the real horror is the people in these town, in this town, man. Um, as you mentioned, you land in, in a town, a little archipelago called the, the Marrows, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, there's, it's just full of these creepy-ass villagers. You know, I think they did such a great job characterizing all of these various people, their varying degrees of paranoid or, you know, uh, a little skittish or, you know, anxious. There's something going on here that no one is quite comfortable with. And that kind of feeds back into the Lovecraftian aspect of that. Like, um, there's definitely a difference between Lovecraftian horror and something like a Resident Evil horror. The Lovecraftian is about, like, losing your mind and losing your sanity. Whispers in the dark that kind of get to you and take over. Um, As opposed to, like, I don't know, zombies or vampires or what have you. So it's they play to that really well. And I think that's actually one of the really interesting things about the game is um, 
think about fishing games you've played before either a fishing mm-hmm. game itself or a mini game like in a you know legend of zelda uh has a lot of fishing games or hades had a tiny fishing game um like these fishing games are often kind of like breaks from the action or it's a cozy kind of game in the atmosphere so combining that with this like you're slowly losing your sanity while you're doing this fishing is a very novel take, uh, a novel spin on the fishing video game genre. Yeah, I mean, I'd imagine being a professional angler, you know, if you are in, in the, this probably it doesn't actually happen in real life, but if you're the one guy going out on a boat to catch fish for a village, it would be extremely lonely. And, you know, when you're alone and it's just you and the sea and the sea may contain otherworldly uh, paranoia-inducing things that you don't understand. Yeah, that's that's got Lovecraft written all over it. Mm-hmm. Um, this game does sort of have its its own unique place in the long and, as you said, storied genre of fishing games and mini games that are littered throughout video game history. Um, mm-hmm. I know I have I have my own list of favorite video game fishing and least favorite video game fishing. Um, but this game, I think, does a a very competent job of, of making fishing a fun activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about how it does that a little bit, too. Um, specifically, like, when there's different activities you can do in the game, fishing being one of the major ones that has a minigame with it, but there's other minigames, too. But um, even with the fishing minigame, there's kind of three variants on it. There's the... Uh, there every everything in this game, all the mini games are kind of like circle based in a way, um, timing based, timing based, and yeah, but also kind of like going around in a circle in some ways. Um, mm. The the I guess most basic one is you just have the spinner going around the circle, and you have to hit it when the it's in the green area. Yeah, and then there's uh, others where they sort of um, separate the circle into different portions and, and make sure that you're uh, hitting the correct green area when it goes into that specific zone. It is, uh, there, there's, as you mentioned, Josh, a few different articulations of it, but it basically boils down to a series of different quick time events that you are forced to execute. Otherwise, uh, you lose time on how long it's taking you to catch this fish. And um, time is an important thing in this game. Um, you only have so much time at sea before uh, the mind begins to deteriorate. <laughs> This game has a very strong day-night cycle system. And unlike other games where it's like, oh, it's nighttime, get back and fall asleep before you run out of energy, this game really leans into the horror aspect of it. Um, The longer you stay up, the more panicked you get. I, I will say one of the things I loved about this game is they did not explain it at the beginning. Um, when they said, don't go out at night, bad things happen. And then, of course, you're stuck out there at night because you're slow as molasses at the beginning. Um, (laughs) So you're, like, trying to get back, and you're like, what's going to happen? You see these strange eyeballs starting to float around in the distance. Um, If your panic gets high enough, which is not like a meter, uh, so it's not something where it's like, okay, I'm good until my panic reaches this point. Um, But once your panic gets high enough, you start seeing more otherworldly horrors uh you start hallucinating rocks that will uh appear out of nowhere in front of you and you got to dodge them um but i really love that they didn't explain what happens or what you need to do they're just like bad stuff happens 
Yeah, it's sort of a that it's it's only visualized on the screen by this eye that continues to open wider and wider and get more sort of frantic uh, at the top center of your screen as you go out. It's sort of a panic mechanic, if you will. And um, it I I was initially very cautious about this. Um, you know, I think this this game, as you mentioned, Josh, because of its lack of explanation about that mechanic in general, it can make you go one of two ways. Either you want to experiment and see, like, what does this actually do? Or um, if you're a baby like me, you become extremely conservative about it. Um, <laughs> and initially, I was very cautious. So I didn't, I tried not to be out at night too much. Um, but then I got distracted because, um, you know, maybe something um, one of my kids did, or I was uh, suddenly I was out at night uh, too late fishing. And immediately I got smoked by a fake boat, which turned out to be a large fish, uh, which ate my my small fledgling craft. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and then once I realized that the penalty for death was basically trivial, I became emboldened. Uh, and I suddenly went from conservative fisher to risky fisher. <laughs> well, that's the thing, too. If it's like, oh, the penalty for staying out at night is a $25 parking ticket or whatever and you're like oh okay i know what's going on but in that moment at the beginning of the game where they don't tell you what it is that's going to happen and you don't know and i will say the um the visual effects for nighttime and the panic meter are fantastic uh there's this whole fog that settles down on everything and you kind of see where the the one lighthouse in the game is but you don't see anything else around there um it's a very kind of like it makes you want to play conservatively and kind of like creep back into town as best you can before you get killed by a fish, which sounds less mysterious than it plays out. Yeah, you mentioned the the effects that come into play with this. You know, this really reminds me of like the the all time classic sanity mechanic, and mm. that's basically what this boils down to right here: uh, Eternal Darkness on the GameCube. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this game articulates it in a really cool way. It does this sort of tint shift thing where, like, it starts separating out red and blue from the outlines of everything on the screen. Um, Chromatic aberration. Ah, nice. Good poll. Who's the big vocabulary boy now? Um, <laughs> a little bit of graphics <laughs> programming. That'll do it to you. <laughs> there you go. Um, but, yeah, um, as you mentioned, you know, scary monsters appear. You start hearing whispers. Um, the water bubbles on the surface that, you know, during the day would just be fish start um, teeming with some more scary looking creatures or completely unnatural creatures. Um, it's just, it, and of course, you know, all of this is only going to be remedied when you eventually go back to port and rest, sleep. Mm-hmm. I think at the beginning, this mechanic worked really well, but I wish they took it farther as the game went on. I wish there was kind of like maybe some sort of cumulative panic that you took. Like if you spend too much time out at night, then your permanent like sanity meter decreases or something like that. And it really kind of like puts that fear in you. What happens when your sanity meter gets too low? I don't know, but I don't want that to happen. Reminds me of like (laughs) Citizen Sleeper when you don't want your like uh, condition to get below four dice. Right. (laughs) I don't want to lose it. It's interesting because I feel like you do, and probably by design, end up playing in that low sanity or high panic mode more often than not. Um, 
And hilariously, I think it is possible to avoid most of this game's horror theming just by sticking to fishing during the day. I mean, there are precious few things in the, you know, mainline plot that force you to be out at night. There are things, but um, I don't have no idea why you would play the game like this, but it is possible to just be like a normal fish guy during the day and stay sane. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they could have pushed you out at night a little more, actually. Like, um, there's this whole upgrade system where your boat starts off super slow and you get speed later on. And that's kind of like the broadening of the range that you can go in a single day. Um, I kind of wish they, I don't know if it was a different pace or they pushed you into the nighttime a little bit more, but I feel like I did stay in that conservative mode for a long time. And there was a moment where the magic broke and they never like, Re- brought things back by changing uh throwing an off-speed pitch or something like that you know what i mean yeah you're right there there's uh precious little in terms of like scripted things here like the story is told with a really light touch and maybe it's worth just circling back a little bit um because you mentioned you know josh that um you have a you you have an inventory, and so the thing that's forcing you to go back to town every so often instead of staying out all night is the fact that you'll fill up your boat's hull with fish. And mm-hmm. the way this articulates is basically a um, Diablo II or um, Resident Evil-style uh, inventory Tetris situation where you're catching a fish, and it's a certain shape, and you fit it into a certain spot in your hull, and um, eventually that fills up, right? So... All the fish are different shapes, and um, all the aberrations uh, have great designs, so you get to see these Mm -hmm. fish in these weird shapes. But eventually, you have to go back, and um, if you time that up with the day-night cycle, it's all gravy, but there comes a point where you're like, oh, I just see that one more little disturbed water over there on the horizon. I wonder what's sitting in there for me to go fish up, and maybe that's when you get your first dose of nighttime fishing. And there are perks to doing it at nighttime. You come across more of the corrupted fish um, during the night. And you you mentioned that you can find like these aberrations, uh, which are like fish, but instead of having scales, they have thousands of gibbering mouths on them. Uh, And it's like really great little touches with that. And that little like um, that tiny little like piano trill that happens when you pick one up. Fantastic. Yeah, it does this little. Yeah, it's it, they're all really creepy and really well um, drawn. Um, they have fantastic designs, um, and I think it's it's really interesting how they sort of separate the very mundane act of fishing these perfectly normal fish from all of a sudden you see something that's like completely out of the ordinary, and it's sort of jarring the first time you see it, and then it just sort of bleeds into the atmosphere of the game over time. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. For sure. I did enjoy the kind of the inventory Tetris in this game because their fish would always have crazy shapes to them, especially the more valuable ones. So it was always kind of worth your while to like, okay, I'm going to juggle these materials over here. These materials I dredged up and then we'll move to, so I can get this giant shark in here. So it was kind of like mm. enjoyable. I almost think of that as a mini game in this. It wasn't a, um, it was foregrounded enough that I don't consider it a chore. It was like, this is a thing the devs want you to do when they tried to make it entertaining in its own way. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I really liked the inventory Tetris uh, 
aspect of this as well. And I, I think this is, you know, interestingly, we just did a another game where Inventory Tetris was front and center with Backpack Hero. Mm-hmm. So I think there's definitely something in the, the zeitgeist with this idea. Um, and to that end, um, you know, you can increase that amount of size that you have in your hall through through upgrades. There's lots of other things you can upgrade, but the primary one, at least for me, that I was always trying to go is to increase that hall. Um, but maybe we talk a little bit about uh, your boat and what's going on there and, and what you can add to it and additional mechanics that come into play. The boat starts off feeling very much like a boat. It's slow. It doesn't <laughs> turn very easily. Uh, I, th- I thought it felt great. I'm like, this is this is a, definitely a boat I'm steering around at the beginning. You couldn't get like farther than across the bay um, in the beginning because you're so slow. Uh, but later on, you get to upgrade so you have more space for it. Uh, things like more fishing poles that can fish in different element types, I'm going to call them. Um, You get a a net that you can trawl around behind you to automatically catch fish. Uh, You pick Mm -hmm. up like crab pots that have their own kind of like ways to place them and ways to make money off of that. Um, And then, important for the story, you get this dredge mechanic, which is another circle-based mini-game where you bring up lumber, steel, cloth, raw materials you use to upgrade your boat yeah it's it's very um, a good point that you have sort of two things that you're really out there trying to pull up from the depths one is obviously all the fish that we've talked about there and the crab pots get crabs um, you know fauna um for lack of a better Mm. word is the one thing you get the other thing is uh everything else that's down at the bottom of the ocean so we're talking as you mentioned shipwrecks scrap cloth random treasures that are taken from shipwrecks or um, former fishermen uh, that may have been out there before you. And um, uh, those are used to, to power these upgrades. So you can upgrade, as we already mentioned, your cargo. You can add, say, a new rod that's going to let you fish in different types of waters or fish in deeper waters or fish in silty waters or fish in volcanic waters. And um, all of that corresponds nicely with the various uh, parts of the map that they are having you explore and the different biomes that are, are present that we'll, we'll definitely touch on later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you also get more cargo space or more space inside because your car, your boat is like a, I don't know, at the end of the game, maybe a 24 by 12 grid or something like that of different boxes you can fit things in. Um Starts off a lot smaller though, and you have limited space to put your fishing rods or engines or lights. Very important at the very beginning because the way you take damage when you get whacked by a giant fish or you run into rocks is a random inventory spot in your boat becomes disabled. If there is a piece of equipment there, then it's disabled too. If it happens to be your only engine on the boat, you are going to be out there past nightfall, which actually was a kind of cool experience. That was the first time I really stayed up past uh, uh, dusk in the game was when my boat was just pretty much getting moved in by the tides back to town. (laughs) I think it could have gone a little faster, but it was still an interesting experience. I liked this idea in that like when you get when you take a hit or run into a rock or, or whatever happens and you take damage, your hull is damaged and that corresponds with a spot in your inventory. Like I think that's a good idea. 
But I also, you know, and, and you maybe you touched on this a bit, is I thought it was a little harsh, especially if it takes out your engines. Um, when I played this game, and I know this game is a continually evolving product, there's no visual representation outside of the inventory menu for how much damage your ship had taken out of its total amount. So that bit me in the ass a couple times when I was more damaged than I thought I was, and I, you know, was driving my boat carelessly, and I ran into a rock not knowing that that was my last hit. And, uh, yeah, uh, lost my cargo there. So, you know, maybe maybe there's some some uh, additional UI help that I could see being useful in that regard. But other than that, you know, I thought it was an interesting mechanic. I think this game did have a aesthetically good UI. Like, it looked really nice when you were in town or in the inventory mm-hmm. system, like, a large part of this game was interacting with menus of one sort or another. Um, and they made it look pretty for that, which I thought was good. But UI in terms of like the controls, like I played this on the Steam Deck. I don't know. Did you? I played it on the PC on a controller with my monitor instead of the deck. Some of their control scheme ideas with the controller were a bit clunky. Like you'd have to do a lot of extra work it seemed like sometimes to get from um one one menu to another yeah you know i i think it's well observed that you're saying that you spend a lot of time in menus in this game because your boat basically is a menu like when you're out on the water you have you know we already mentioned the inventory portion of the menu but you also have uh this part of the menu where you can see um your boat's cabin where you have uh, books that you might be reading that you received as rewards for various quests. Oh, I loved that little touch. Like the idea, like I'm bored out on the water while I'm going back to town. So I'm just going to read a novel on engine mechanics. And now I'm better at (laughs) engines. Hey, why not? Right. Um, I also like that. This is where you could access the encyclopedia of fish and see all the various fish and the aberrations and, you know, where they live and, um, uh, all of that good information that they have about about those things. Um, I did think, however, that um, there were some fish that, given you could, that you needed to get for certain quests that you could only get through certain mechanisms of fishing. Like there, are, the crab pot ones are pretty obvious, but there are certain fish you can only catch by trawling. Which I don't know if I just missed that in some sort of explanation or uh, dialogue that happened, but it definitely stumped me once or twice when I was looking for ever and ever and ever for a fish and I needed to use my my trawling net which I rarely kept equipped oh I didn't notice that at all because I always had my trawling net going behind me I didn't realize (laughs) it made you slower which is why you probably don't use it so I'm just like yeah free money sure let's let's go with that that's funny um well um hey I mean I guess it worked out for you that's what counts They also, in your boat menu, have uh, your pursuits, which is basically your your journal or your quest log. And maybe that leads us nicely into um, what you're actually trying to accomplish throughout this game. Yeah, the plot of this game is that you run into this mysterious collector who's living alone on this island. And the collector wants you to collect all these... (laughs) Uh, treasures from what you learn from these uh, journal entries are like uh, the belongings and keepsakes of his uh, drowned wife. Yeah, so you are uh, basically 
trying to uh, go to each of the areas that he directs you to and find out uh, what's going on in this area and see if you can recover a specific item that uh, he is asking you to find. And the map is very simply divided up into, you know, your starting area, the marrows in the center, with a different biome in each of the four corners of the map. And uh, the collector is basically sending you to a succession of these areas to find each of these specific items that uh, he wants you to gather. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll bring them back. He grants you additional powers as well. Um, from his book of not good magic from the deep. Uh, but these are interesting powers. Like there's the haste, which gives you a speed boost, but also increases your panic meter at the same time you use that. I thought that was, that was the most interesting one. There's um, other ones like the teleport back to the collector. Uh, that was kind of like, okay, it saves me time, but I feel like it didn't need to. I, I felt like the other powers were less useful or maybe should have like the haste was the most interesting risk versus reward one and the other ones just felt a little more like they took away from the game rather than add to it i kind of agree with you in that regard like those the powers that like yay you automatically fish up this entire area of disturbed water or yeah like you said you teleport immediately back to the uh blackstone isle which is where the collector is um you know, maybe convenient, but also like kind of removes what you're going for with this game, which is like, you know, it's all about the traversing, the traveling, like making um, use of the logistical capabilities of your craft and the sanity of your pilot. Um, and yeah, if you're kind of just circumventing that with, um, you know, removing the need to spend time fishing, which it's worth mentioning, time only advances when you're either fishing or moving. So, effectively, uh, the two powers you just mentioned there obviate both of those. I think it is a little interesting. I know right now both of us are playing Tears of the Kingdom, uh, which is a fantastic game. I'm sure it's going to be a cast once we eventually both beat it. Um, but <laughs> yes. comparing this game to that, like this game, it gives you the map like you said, that starting areas in the beginning and the four corners have the different kind of island worlds. Um, but like this game is a lot more linear, not just linear, but like these are the things you can do, it says. And it's not like there's towns or things to do in between or outside of these islands. You go from the center island to a corner and back. Uh, you there There are islands and you can go through, traverse things, get a little more side story and whatnot, but, like, I did that a few times and checked out some of the islands, and I felt like um, it felt emptier in a way. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, this is kind of like we're working with a small team here, um, and, and, you know, there's only so much content, you know, four people could put into a game. <laughs> but I hear you on the fact that, like, um, I could do with a bit more filled out of a world like there are some mini quests you know your random cloaked guy on an island that asks for xyz and you get a book from it um you know you're building a house for someone by gathering materials for them like there's nice little mini side quests here um and of course the messages in the bottle that i think is a really nice touch sort of giving the the light touch backstory for this whole thing but to your point i i do feel like the it, it was definitely focused on those biome areas and not so much the interstitial space. 
I feel like they possibly could have removed the interstitial space and had the biomes be more all-encompassing without necessarily losing the feeling they were trying to go to or having to add more content. Like, I felt like each of these islands were was almost like its own level or its own stage in the game. And it's like they were far away enough from each other that the mechanics and the monsters didn't ever extend past their narrow boundaries. Yeah, you, you make a good point because this map is big. But it's more made to feel big through like the sense of mystery in in the space. Like once your engines are fully upgraded, like you can crisscross the thing pretty quickly. Um, and I think the nice thing that they did is they deliberately placed the biomes pretty far away from Marrows. So to your to your point about it being like maybe a little oversized, that also feeds back into that panic mechanic, right? The sanity mechanic. Um, it forces you to experience that a bit more, which is good. Like, I think that's one of the strong suits of the game. So putting the player in the space where they're going to experience that some more is, is probably a good thing. But um, I think maybe they could have just done maybe a little more with the side quest aspect of it to reward um, doing that additional travel rather than um, just making it an opportunity to showcase that panic mechanic. Yeah, I do think that they wanted that starting archipelago to be kind of isolated from the other things so that you, you'd think it was a foolish idea to try to cross it at night, um, which I could see that as a legit design decision. I just think they could have kept that but kept the other worlds a little more interconnected or a little little less like here's your hard boundary of where the volcano monster will start attacking you um <laughs> it was very obvious that's like okay i'm going into danger now because i'm going towards the volcano there like i had too much knowledge and when you know about horror and you know where is safe and where isn't that kind of removes some of the punch from it yeah i think that's that's probably right like the sense of mystery and surprise is really what's going to drive the effectiveness of, of that type of mechanic and really like the mood and vibe that the game is trying to put the player in. So I, I agree with you in that regard. To bring it back to, you know, my not my favorite series, but Resident Evil, I remember playing the remaster and there's that um, initial room in the police station that is safe until it isn't and Mr. X is chasing you through it. And that's a great moment in that game. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good um, sort of counterpoint to what this game is doing. And yeah, um, I guess there is like a persistent threat. Like there's that uh, uh, other boat that follows you around and becomes a gigantic fish that will eat you. But there's nothing quite as uh, thematic or like stunning as the Mister X thing. Which you know that's a pretty that's a pretty high bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So maybe to talk a little bit more about the characterization of the various areas that you find yourself in, do you want to run through um, each of our, our biomes, talk about some of our favorite aspects of them? Sure. So we already talked about uh, the Marrow Archipelago where you start out. Um, I think my favorite part of this was uh, the creepy villagers and all the various barks that they have when you talk to them. 
Um, everyone <laughs> in this in this whole town is like a varying degrees of haggard and paranoid. Um, <laughs> and you know, you have your shipwright who will help you, and your fishmonger who, you know, is buying your fish. But then all of a sudden, he's like, "Hey, can you give me one of those weird fish? <laughs> I want to cook it up. I want to take a bite." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was a that was a uh, memorable quest. Yeah, I think I think this game does a really good job with sort of even you know however scant its characters and NPCs are like they're all really well drawn and characterized for the small amount of writing that they have. Marrow definitely had the widest variety of characters as well. Uh, the yeah. other islands typically had one, maybe two quest characters, and then they had the kind of like mechanical fish floating nomad merchant person who <laughs> would do all the repairs and upgrades and fish monging that you needed yeah i, I was going to mention the the traveling merchant uh because this was a really nice uh, affordance to the player um obviously we mentioned that you have to go and sell your fish because you have a limited inventory and if you had to go all the way back to the marrows every time you wanted to do that that would make this game untenable and so the fish the ability... rot as well yeah. you have a limited <laughs> amount of time to sell them before they turn into mush yeah so you need to um have a way to offload your your product uh in the far-flung reaches of this region mm -hmm. and the uh, the traveling merchant fulfills that uh that role for you in your fishing expeditions for sure for sure and it was nice to see the familiar face i liked her she was a you know nicely characterized uh enjoyable personality and everything um yeah first meter in the gale cliffs uh which is uh i think this was my favorite of the four areas yeah i really like the gale cliffs too um very striking looking area with these tall cliffs raising up in these deep sort of fjord canyon type uh situations that you're piloting your craft through it's the first time in the game where they're actually like making sure hey you know um you need to be specific and and um very exact about how you're driving this boat um and i sucked at driving this boat for some reason like i've seen a lot of people a lot of people praising this game's controls and how the boat moves but uh, for whatever reason i can't i couldn't grok it as well as maybe some other folks could maybe i'm just not i'm not cut out to be a sailor i don't know <laughs> <laughs> you had some tight and twisty passageways to go through and this game introduced the first of the four island monsters uh that was in each of the different worlds uh this one would chase you through the different uh narrow passageways um, which made for some tense things because the main quest of the game sends you into this maze of passageways. Yeah, so this is a former whaling community that's home to like a retired whaler, and there's these ruins that are inhabited by a hermit, and they, they are asking you to recover a family crest after their town was destroyed by the serpent that you just mentioned, Josh. And uh, once you do that and you're able to sort of reunite... Um, this hermit with his brother back in the town, uh, you get the ability to, one, buy explosives, but two, you get the first of your collectibles that you're getting for the mysterious Black Isle Collector. Mm -hmm. Just some really good, like, you have to go into the thicket where the serpent chases you several times in order to go through the quest. Um, and I think, like, they can send it 
you through that the first time and you're like, oh man, there's this giant fish chasing me in here. Um, But you don't realize that until you go in there. And then when they make you go back into it, it's a nice little touch because when you know what's facing you in there and that you don't have room to maneuver around, it makes it um, more tense. Absolutely. It's sort of a sort of a minotaur situation. Like there's this beast chasing you through these winding, twisting tunnels, and uh, you need to do what you need to do and get out before it gets you. Um, very tense, uh, even in the daytime, which I think is a nice uh, two inversion of what you have experienced up to that point. Oh, that's true. Because up to this point, daytime has been safe time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but once there's monsters at play, all bets are off. so you go through you recover the family crest reunite the hermit with his brother who makes bombs for you from this point onwards um and then you're off to the stellar basin to collect the next artifact yeah probably the most visually striking area from my perspective um at night this area is full of these glowing bioluminescent jellyfish it's sort of more of a tropical vibe it's really beautiful it's sort of an atoll that contains in its center a gigantic sort of kraken monster from beyond the stars at the center of its crater. (laughs) Which I love the idea of this monster, but mechanically, all it was was don't swim here, which, (laughs) you know. I agree. Definitely simple in execution, but more of a visually striking situation than a mechanically striking one. Um, This has you basically working with a researcher who is... Um, trying to figure out what caused the destruction of the nearby resort town, and it turns out it's this creature. And they've devised a way to keep the creature from resurfacing, uh, basically by broadcasting a signal. So you're helping them reactivate this signal broadcasting mechanism. I will say that the Stellar Basin, I did like the area. It was very visually impressive, Uh, but it did have... I think one of the biggest stumbles they had in the game design from my perspective. We're talking about uh, the different elemental types of fish. Uh, There's two of them that are kind of like the same. There's the abyssal fish that live really deep and the hadal fish. Uh, you know, Hades that live even deeper, I suppose. Um, (laughs) But when you are first doing this quest, um, you get this experimental research rod that can catch one type but not the other. At the same time, they give you a research part, and what you're supposed to do is instantly research the fishing rod that lets you get the second type of deep fish, because you need to progress that for the storyline. I didn't cotton on to the fact that I was supposed to get that by research, so I spent the research part on another upgrade, and then I had to trawl the world until I found a research part in order to continue the story there. So I, I definitely th- think that was a game stumble by them. Yeah, they, they definitely uh, didn't make that as specific as they should have. Um, I don't remember if I... I think they should have just had one type there. Yeah, it, it was probably needlessly complex in terms of like the use this screwdriver for this you know this is the difference between a flathead and a phillips head screwdriver really you know two things <laughs> that are doing almost the same thing um but um to your point josh uh, maybe we should touch quickly on on the you mentioned research uh parts or tokens they basically manifest as gears uh visually in the game and these are things you can find sort of all over the place like as part of mini uh, side quests or as part of just exploration where you find like a shipwreck and it has a few of these in it um, they're all over the place, but uh, to Josh's point, if you 
have a sudden need for one and you don't have one, um, you're kind of <laughs> boned because they're very random in how they're distributed throughout the world. So um, hopefully you don't run into a situation where you're at a deficit of them. I always tried to keep like two or three on hand in case I came across a, a story reason to need them. And I think part of this was exacerbated by uh, me very eagerly consuming everything around the Marrow um, Islands and there wasn't a lot of places for me to look after that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. And to, to your point, like if having a specific upgrade that you could only get through that, um, you know, the research gears or I can't remember our research parts providing those specifically for that purpose was, would probably be a better move than like just having the player intuit it. Although I do remember as part of one of the dev interviews that I read that they wanted to be less handholdly, like, excuse me, less handholdy than, um, a lot of other games out there on the market. So maybe this is part of the design ethos as well. So, you know, you get, you reap what you sow when you take that sort of tack with things, I guess. Well, the thing is, these two fish types that you need, they're the same thing. They live deep. There's, they, they're all around the same atoll. They are not in other places on the world. You need them at the same time. There's not like a, oh, you know, five months later, we're going to need this. Um, you need to catch them at the same time. It's like, there's, I, I saw no reason for there to be two types and for them to put that artificial barrier in there. Yeah, it, it was really just, uh, it, it, you know, we talked about this when we talk about Metroidvanias. It's a lock and key system, right? Like, um, it's very much just a situation where they're adding a specific mechanical twist so that you, as a player, have to do a specific mechanical unlock to achieve it. And uh, it's mechanical padding uh, is mm-hmm. what it is. So I I don't disagree with you in that regard. Uh, they at least made it obvious that Abyssal and Hadel are different. You know, they have these nice color-coded splotches that are attached to each of the tools that correspond to them. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I do agree that it doesn't really add a lot thematically, which, you know, if we're talking about like the best possible aspect of making your mechanics and your theme and your story all work together, you know, the old uh, tried and true adage of what we like to see in games personally, uh, as, or at least what I I remember us both saying we like seeing in games, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like that doesn't necessarily square that circle. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. So, Small misstep by the developers, in my opinion, but uh, it was still a great area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot going on here more so than just that mechanical thing, too. I like that they were uh, sort of showing like, oh, there used to be a thriving resort here and it's gone now. And there's this fort over here that's from a time even before that, which um, I don't know if you picked up on this, but most of the areas in this um, game have this sort of undercurrent of history like there is a historical time period where there was a war going on in here and we have that with you know the next area we'll talk about of course but also this one with its forts um so i think it's it's cool how they're characterizing these areas and uh making them not just one static thing but have a history they did have this game it felt like in a very specific time period as well like um 1926 Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, makes sense. But, like, when you're first playing it, that's not so obvious. Like, um, up through Gale Cliffs, is there anything that this couldn't have been done in the modern day? 
Like, sure, there's no GPS on the boat, but you got the mini-map, so there could have been. So I think I'm trying to remember exactly where or where I saw this, but I think I remember seeing a note in a bottle that had a date attached to it, which was 1926 or something like that, sometime in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So we're grounding ourselves in, like, early 20th century. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of all I'm going off of. And, you know, we'll talk later about sort of the implications of those messages in bottles versus what you're experiencing in the game. But um, that's where I sort of pulled, like, we're somewhere in the 20th century here. We should move on to our, our next area because I, I mentioned some of these or I mentioned some of these historical context items and I think this is no better exemplified than uh, the third area that you visit, the Twisted Strand, which is sort of a mangrove style area. You know, lots of tall trees with roots um, and a very maze-like environment that you're forced to navigate with your boat. Uh, your goal here is the collector sends you. Uh, is to track down another artifact that he's trying to collect, but um, the person who has it, or the person who knows its whereabouts, is a pilot who went down here years ago and has been stranded, and you are basically there trying to find his other lost uh, flight crew members. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you see like wreckages of planes nearby here, biplanes, so definitely very kind of like grounded in that historical time period that Brian was referencing. Um, I did feel there was a difference, though, in the maze-likeness of the Twisted Strand versus the Gale Cliffs, in that the monsters that were chasing you in the Twisted Strand were meant to be lured to certain locations as part of the storyline in order to, um, so the, uh, lost airman that you find can avenge his buddies by setting a motor trap for them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on top of that, um, and I really like that mortar trap um, situation, by the way. I think that was really cool that you had to sort of lure them in and and, uh, kill them. But I I thought the the maze aspect that uh, you mentioned right up top is also, like, complexified in this area. In the Gale Cliffs, it was static. Like, you knew where you could get through and where you couldn't. But in the um, Twisted Strand, the maze shifted, which made things more difficult. Um, there were roots that would rise and fall as a result of the movements of these monsters. And so you could find yourself cut off from an area that you needed to get to and needing to navigate to an alternate route. So, you know, this is obviously just, you know, they're meaning for you to go to this part later in the game. So they are, of course, making the um, task for the player to do more complex. Um, I pity the person who wandered into this area before they did Gale Cliffs, but... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> They do do a decent job signposting which one you should go to first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Um, you know, nicely laid out by the central pursuit of the game, you know, dealing with the Black Isle or Blackstone Isle Collector. But um, to my mind, I, I think this was actually my most difficult area personally. Um, you know, navigating around this area was a chore for me. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I felt like... Like I mentioned, the monsters were different than the ones in the Gale Cliffs. Like, the one in the Gale Cliffs, it's designed to catch up to you, but I felt like these monsters, since you were supposed to lure them around, they're almost designed so you can outrun them and outrace them, outmaneuver them, which, to me, made them less threatening. Like, I'm like, okay, here's here's this guy. 
I'm going to just go around in circles a bit till I lose him. Uh, so I felt like this, this one didn't have the punch to me from the horror perspective um, or the, maybe the tension perspective that Gail Cliffs did. Yeah, I agree with you. But you get through this, you motor everyone, or rather the airman does, and then he gives you the collector's item that you've been looking for. Yes, and with that, uh, you have all but one of your uh, items for the Blackstone Owl Collector, and you're off to the final area, the Volcanic Devil's Spine. So in this area, you are navigating around um, a volcanic uh, series of islands that um, has a history. There are ruins here, the ruins of a former civilization that is uh, long since passed. And there is this mysterious sort of prophet figure who is asking you to uh, retrieve uh, flames from these shrines. I think this is the most specifically occult portion of the game, yeah? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, this guy is very clear that he's, like, working with the old gods and has tried to complete a ritual here. And you're like, sure, buddy. I'll fetch your <laughs> magic flames. That's fine. Whatever's going to get you to give me that last artifact. <laughs> <laughs> but this is an interesting navigational puzzle because a lot of the places we've been before this have been, um, I almost want to say, more boat-shaped. And the way they expect you to move around, like you can always move forward, even when you're navigating a twisty maze or passageway. And the ruins inside the volcano are very much like blockier and more square. And it takes a lot more effort to navigate around them, especially when you're going as fast as you do by the end of the game. Yeah, that's a really great point. Like these very geometric patterns of you know, partially submerged buildings that you're navigating between you know, ruins. Um, it's way different than all of the more organic uh, areas that you've been navigating up until that point. And it's, it's, it's further um, made difficult by the fact that there is a large sort of molten fish that's chasing you around and it has these smaller fish that leads you to it so there's this interesting mechanic where there is uh, a blind big bad that is led to you by its small fast children and the goal here is to scare those little children fish away before they alert mommy fish i really did like the monster for this island like the mechanic because you had the tiny fish um, that would stick to your boat and again attract the big bad to you so when you got a tiny fish stuck on you you had to make your way to one of the volcano vents in order to steam the barnacle off of your boat yeah the other option is you can use a power that you had which repelled um, uh, evil creatures uh, which oh. you received from the, the last uh, upgrade from the collector I refused to use this power I felt like it just made things too easy and broke the point of the game yeah it's kind of like activating a star in super mario world uh anytime you wanted as long as it wasn't on cooldown so pretend you had <laughs> star power on cooldown in mario and basically that's what we're talking about <laughs> i don't know like um when you're dealing with unfathomable evil um 
you almost feel like you shouldn't be able to stop it or control it or contain it. And when you feel like you have control over it, that really changes the dynamic. It's like how in uh, Subnautica would be a different game if it had guns and it had a cannon that you could use to shoot down the Leviathans. That you don't have that cannon and that you are at their mercy, you're not in control so it's effective as a horror game. I think it's slightly more thematically resonant that you're not killing it. You're just warding it away. But I, I agree with the sentiment that like the fact that you have any power to repel these horrors is undercutting a little bit about whatever the game has been doing up to this point. Um, so I, I'm with you in that regard. I still used it because at this point I was like I was in the, the home stretch. I knew I was in the home stretch and there was nothing that was keeping me from getting that last artifact. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so to that end, um, this is where we we call to uh, a close our our grand quest to collect all of these artifacts for our mysterious benefactor, the the Blackstone Isle Manor dwelling creep that we have been running errands for for the last uh, ten or so hours. You bring the last artifact back to him, and he very kindly tells you this is the point of no return. Are you sure you want to go forward? Which I appreciate the bluntness right there. Um, like, yeah, game, let me know exactly where we are right now. Let me make a save point here. Uh, but then you accept that. You take him on the boat, and he brings you to a short ways away from the Blackstone Island, where you drop everything overboard. I'm sorry, um, he, summons, he uses the Book of the Deep to summon JJ, the... Um, betrothed recently married wife who drowned in the you find in the messages in a bottle um, and she gets brought back from the dead as well as a presumably world ending Cthulhu monster yeah so I guess it's revealed that basically you know the book that you've been learning all of your powers from the whole time the book of the deep you mentioned Josh is uh basically this book of occult magic and it's worth mentioning that all of the bottles that you've been finding throughout as as josh quickly mentioned there have been um basically written by uh this betrothed wife who uh was married to a fisherman who had a vessel uh and something went wrong with the renaming ritual for the vessel and as a result uh, all of this weirdness started happening and this book sort of came into the hands of of the fisherman in question and so, uh, as you mentioned, Josh, in the sort of the, the first and um, straightforward ending of the game, you are fulfilling the ask of that figure uh, who now lives on Blackstone Isle and bringing, or using the Book of the Deep to bring about the resurrection of this deep cosmic spirit, a.k.a. Cthulhu, who uh, I guess destroys the world. Yeah, bad ending, right? I mean, he's probably not coming to grab a bite at mcdonald's or anything like that right <laughs> you don't no, really see not. what he does i don't think but he he shows up he's gigantic and scary looking it's probably not good <laughs> um, <laughs> but to that end this game is not one with just the bad ending there is in fact another route if you head back to that convenient save point that you created earlier exactly um, your other option, once you uh, first talk to, or once you bring the last item back to the uh, Blackstone Isle Manor creature, is to refuse his request to, to hand over things until they explain what's going on with that book. 
and eventually it resolves in an altercation, which ends up with you going to punch the figure, the Black Isle Manor figure. And it turns out that that figure was a mirror. You have been talking to yourself. You're a schizophrenic maniac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turns out you've been the one with the book the whole time, uh, which is very fitting in the whole Lovecraftian mythos. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is um, sort of one of those reveals that was like, oh, of course, the paranoia, schizophrenia, that's been underplaying or underlying this game the entire time. Of course, that's how this would resolve. So as soon as you realize that, you have the opportunity to go and talk to the lighthouse keeper back in the Marrows, who is the one person who is aware that you were the original fisherman who, um, you know, came to the town a long time ago and ended up, um, you know, you were being referenced by the mayor and other citizens throughout the area about having lost your wife and sort of losing your way and fishing at night and all the crazy stuff started happening after. Um, If you follow the directions of the lighthouse keeper, She directs you to an area where you can dispose of the Book of the Deep. And uh, if that is the route that you choose, eventually uh, a Leviathan-like figure comes and devours both the Book of the Deep and you and your boat and everything having to do with this uh, horrible series of events, uh, sort of closing the book forever on the events of Dredge. I felt like it was a kind of a fitting ending. Like I could see another game going forward and being like, oh, you throw the book over and look, you retire to an island paradise or something. You're just on the beach all you day. Go back to the, you go back to the Stellar Basin and set up a cavana. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this game was a little bit more like, you know, your character has made choices and there's consequences for the choices. So you get ate by a fish. Yeah, but you keep the entire world from being destroyed, so um, win-win? Win? Win-lose, <laughs> I guess? Yeah, win-lose. Um, Win-stalemate, I suppose. Um, but to that end, you know, I think, to your point, it's it's fitting for this type of fiction. You know, this is Lovecraftian. There's no good ending in this type of story. Uh, all we can hope for is that the, the terribleness is contained <laughs> for someone else to deal with at a later date. So what did you think of the second ending not really being signposted? That it was necessarily an option. I could see someone playing this game and just being like, oh, and that's the end. I guess Cthulhu's here. I guess to my mind, like the only signposting that was there that I kind of picked up on immediately was the save point thing. Um. And realizing that, you know, if you go through that, for what it's worth, I didn't get the bad ending first. I got the good ending first. And it was because as soon as I got that point of no return um, message, I went back and explored around and talked to the lighthouse keeper. (laughs) And, you know, because I I was back there and I saw she had dialogue and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Dialogue. I'm I'm always going to hoover up dialogue whenever I can in any video game, really, but this one especially. So... Um, I didn't feel like signposting was necessarily an issue here for me, but um, maybe that's just my own perspective. I definitely went through and didn't realize there was a second ending uh, the first time around because I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, collector. I, I've, I think like what I was looking for was a earlier route to take, like because the lighthouse keeper definitely like uh, is talking to you through the whole game, like beware don't you don't have to go down this path all that 
very obvious like hey there's something else going on but i never felt like there was a lighthouse keeper's quest i took earlier uh but rather they're like okay you have to return to the collector first and then go to the lighthouse key or maybe you don't i don't know but like yeah no 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 this is a good point because like the sort of devs thought of everything version of this and i'm using that uh turn of phrase in regards to like the deus ex you know like where there's alternative solutions to almost every problem. And in this game, that's not the case. Again, smaller effort, smaller team. Um, I'm not holding this against them, but I think a more clever iteration of this might have allowed you to, say, maybe pick up on some context clues and arrive at the Lighthouse Keeper solution without having gone through all four different biomes. Um, You know, uh, that would be the speedrunner's route, I suppose, too. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I I, I hear you on that. Like the fact that you had to go through all of these trials and tribulations to eventually find out you were the bad guy the whole time. If you're a person with more perception, maybe you could they could have found a way to reward that. Like if you sniffed that out and I think it was pretty hard to do that. I think it was pretty hard to sniff out the fact that there was a paranoia, schizophrenia situation going on here. Well, I thought I was on the evil path the whole time. It's like, okay, I'm returning the artifacts to the collector. He's clearly not the good guy here. But I guess I'm on this path already. I didn't realize the branching path was right at the end there. Yeah, and and I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, maybe they should allow you to branch earlier if you, as you correctly did, intuit the fact that you're not working for the good guy. I agree. Well, I guess instead of armchair um, directing this game that is obviously super successful and we both agree that we like, (laughs) why don't we talk about some good things? Uh, Namely, this game is gorgeous. Absolutely. Uh, It has this kind of illustrated style to it, but it almost seems painterly to me. It actually reminds me of uh, Disco Elysium in a very positive way. That's exactly the word I had written down as painterly. Like It almost looks like it's um, like a more vivid watercolor. Um, it's uh, really well realized. The colors are perfect. Like as uh, the various sunsets and sunrises you experience are, you know, pitch perfect. Uh, on top of that, it has a fantastic score that's uh, re- replete with excellent uh, piano and string music. Uh, you know, fittingly somber and uh, in turns uh, dire, uh, as the mood calls for. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. It it looks gorgeous. It. Uh, I think it feels gorgeous too when you're especially towards the beginning. Um, I feel once your boat gets those turbo engines, then it changes the kind of course. But then the game's like, hey, volcano ruins, ha ha. Yeah. It always has something new to show you, right? Like, uh, this is one of those games where, uh, you know, it starts off and it's wowing you with the way it's looking and sounding and the mood the atmosphere and then as things go like oh you know this is starting to become old hat um and then they introduce a whole new biome and it's all new color palette and a feel and an atmosphere all its own its own you know monster of the week if you will we're talking about this in terms of like it being an episodic game um i feel like it it sort of has that nice thing like i could see you know if you had five nights in a row to just sort of play like marrow's gale Stellar Basin, Twisted Strand, Devil's Spine in the end, like that could be a cool, you know, thing you do for a week. Um, <laughs> I don't know who, I don't know who has that free time in their schedule to regiment that out, but I would like to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thinking about like the aesthetics of the game too, like I, I said, the UI has lots of good, like I like the 
way it looks for sure. But there's also lots of tiny little touches they put into it too. Like if you move a fish around, especially a uh, aberration fish, it wiggles around in your inventory after it gets placed a little bit. Like it, um, the inventory system feels more kinetic than most games' inventory systems do, which is fitting because your inventory system is mostly, ha- you know, it's mostly alive or half alive or you know. Uh, dimensionally alive or otherworldly kind of beings there. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good call out. Um, you know, I think we praise this in other games wherein we praise the inventory. Uh, for example, your backpack heroes. Um, another one that comes to mind with that is uh, unpacking. You know, every uh, piece of uh, thing you're, you know, every piece of furniture or item you're unpacking feels different, sounds different when you put it down, pick it up, and this game definitely delivers on that front as well. It's just the care that's put into all of the various uh, pieces of art that go into making up this game's style and atmosphere as a whole. All right, with that, let's dredge up some three-word reviews. Sounds good to me. My three-word review is Hooked on Horror. Dredge is a game that's easy to praise for a variety of reasons. Simply at an engaging loop of catching fish and upgrading your boat, the gorgeous painterly art style, and the perfect moody music. And the sense of exploration as you learn about the regions surrounding the Maros Archipelago are very well executed. But out of all of the many things Dredge does right, I think the Lovecraftian horror theming is what kept me coming back. The natural, or perhaps unnatural, marriage of Secrets of the Deep with a foreboding Lovecraftian atmosphere was pitch perfect, and the way the game tells its story with a fittingly mysterious light touch kept the tension and mystery at an elevated level. Dredge's cosmic horror backdrop allowed for the elevation of all the other parts of the game through a strong central theme, and crucially, it drove the addition of the novel Panic, or Stress or Sanity mechanic that we've mentioned multiple times, which is reminiscent for me of the GameCube-era classic Eternal Darkness. Dredge has a lot of ways to get you on the hook, but I'm going to guess that it's the horror that keeps you on the line. Nice, nice. Alright, my three-word review for the game is Mood Over Mechanics. Dredge has a really strong hook, rimshot, combining Lovecraftian (laughs) horror with fishing. In one sense, they go together perfectly, as anyone who is taken a look at the fish of the depths can attest to have you ever seen a lamprey eel's mouth you <laughs> um in another in another sense fishing in video games is always treated as a relaxing break from the action or just something to do because it's a cozy game in the end dredge's take on fishing horror seems both fresh and obvious in retrospect which is a sign of a great idea With its strong theming, though, I wish the game broke further from the fishing game lineage. I appreciated the one-button fishing minigames, but found them to wear out their welcome by the time I finished Stellar Basin. I no longer enjoyed fishing, and I understood the horror mechanics too well for them to pack a punch. I was looking for a larger shakeup in the fourth and fifth islands, but the game stuck with the same patterns I'd seen before. This game started off so strongly, but by the end, the mood outlasted the mechanics. Uh, a strong game, a very strong first uh, effort for uh, a new indie studio. So looking forward to what's next here. Lots to go on. 
lots to improve on, but, uh, you know, overall, great experience from my perspective. Oh, fantastic game for sure. Definitely worth the play. All right. Well, with that, we want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on sailing. central thrust of, of dredge is of course a fishing mini game uh from a mechanical perspective what is your favorite fishing game or mini game josh oh man um probably stardew valley i feel they had enough variety and just kind of like meter momentum meter that would go up and down over there this game is definitely a top three in the fishing minigames. I I really liked the uh, by, where they cut the circle into parts and you mm-hmm. skip from part to part there. I felt that was like, oh, this why why hasn't anyone done this before? I I really like the Stardew Valley one you mentioned as well, just because like there was such a nice latitude of like the momentum allowing you to feel what a different fish felt like in that extremely simple context. But if I'm going to articulate my favorite fishing minigame. For me, it has to be the iOS classic, Ridiculous Fishing. Are you familiar? I am familiar. Is that a minigame, though? It's a game. It is a game based (laughs) on fishing. (laughs) And it is a fantastic fishing mechanic. I think it is the best one. Um, For those unfamiliar, you, in the course of this fishing mechanic, are navigating your lure down through a gauntlet of fish to the lowest possible point you can. And then, if you've successfully navigated around all of the fish, the line runs out, and then all of the fish you avoided on the way down, you are forced to run into as many as possible on the way up to catch them. But it doesn't stop there. Once you catch all of those fish and you breach the surface of the water, the fish are flung up into the air, and you take a gun, a shotgun or a machine gun or a minigun or a bazooka, and you blast the shit out of them. And that's how you catch the fish in Ridiculous Fishing. (laughs) Properly ridiculous. Yeah, Ridiculous Fishing is just one of those games that's like, you watch somebody play one run of it, and you're like, I need to get in on that. (laughs) It's a fantastic game. Um, Yeah, might be worthy of a... if, If we ever did a iOS Classics episode or something like that, that would be on my list for sure. I think What the Golf would be on mine. Oh, that's a fantastic game, too. What the Golf is wonderful. Uh, they have a sequel out now, What the Car. <laughs> I saw it right <laughs> 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 Looks amusing. Yeah, I'm not far in it, but I've, I've played a little bit. It's funny. One of the things 
I've been thinking about. We've talked about eternal darkness in this podcast, which was so good. But I feel like that's almost like one of those... I'm trying to imagine an alternate history where more games took up that sanity mechanic and messed with you, the player, kind of in a fourth wall breaking way. Because I love that bit about the game. But it seems like it hasn't been um, as popular. Well, it's famously copyrighted, right? Like it is trademarked and unable to be utilized outside of the, the company that created it, Silicon Knights, I think. And they are no longer extant, as far as I'm aware. So, I don't know. I think that copyright ran out relatively recently. I may be wrong about that. I might need to double check that. But, um, yeah, I agree with you. Like, that mechanic uh, is unfairly underutilized uh, for a long time due to trademark issues. But um, hopefully people start finding a way to bring those ideas back to the forefront. Because I agree, they're super compelling. Although, also, I'm thinking of some of their things like the volume meter (laughs) on your TV going down would not play as well in a remake. (laughs) No, no one's volume meter looks like that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It worked when everyone had the same Magnavox TV, Um, but... (laughs) No longer. Yeah, indeed. Indeed.